0: From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, let's begin with this song, which is from the Broadway musical Promises, Promises, but it was cut. It's very catchy and very apropos for our topic today. This is called TikTok. (laughs) TikTok. Why TikTok, other than that that's just very infectious, because it sounds to me kind of like the genetic clock. The genetic clock that scientists are learning so much about these days and how it relates to language, specifically language families, specifically telling us how language families got to be where they were, what relationships are between different languages. Genetic analysis is teaching us so much about those things and in a virtual flood of information over just the past five to 10 years. And I wanted to share some of that on this show. But first, just by way of review, what is it about genes that allows these kinds of conclusions? Well, DNA is something where I guess you can listen to different podcasts to learn exactly how it works. But the point is that as this molecule is endlessly replicating itself, of course, because it's a real thing, there are going to be little transcription flaws that slip in. So the copying is never completely perfect, especially over long periods of time. So little mistakes creep in that as often as not have no effect upon anything, but they're just these little dings that end up replicating along with all of what replicated properly. And those dings creep in at a certain rate. And it means that you can look at different human groups' DNA. And by comparing what dings they share and what dings they don't and calculating how long it takes for dings to start spreading their way in, you can actually start making a chart of how long groups have been separate when they first branched off from what was before just one group. And if you can do that, then you can look at, one, what that says about where human beings have been, and two, how that correlates with what languages they speak. Or you can even venture suppositions about what languages they spoke. So this genetic analysis is allowing us to have a sense of how humans came to cover and destroy the globe And a lot of that matches interestingly well, or sometimes ominously unwell, with what we know about how languages are related to each other. So we're developing a more and more dynamic, what an overused word dynamic is, but a more and more dynamic sense of how language has spread throughout the world. Which groups, when, what overtook what, what was overtaken by what, we're beginning to have an idea. And ideas like that should be shared. And so... Let's start with Europe, language and Europe. Current situation is that languages of the Indo-European family virtually coat Europe. Basque is all by itself, straddling France and Spain. There's no language in the world that's related to Basque. Then you've got a few of what are called Uralic languages, up in the northeast corner for the most part. And so that's Finnish and Estonian and the languages today called Sami that used to be called Lapish. And those languages are all related to Hungarian. Really, that's it. Other than that, everything is Indo-European. Well what was the original situation? You might look at the situation now and think that these Indo-European people have been there forever, and then that for some reason, some Basque people floated in like milkweed and settled in that one place, and that then these sort of nosy Uralic people came in and took up some space. That's a reasonable supposition, but that is not how it worked, actually. From David Reich's lab, and so many interesting findings have come from there, and if his name is pronounced Rich, I've noticed that every now and then somebody whose last name is written Reich, actually they pronounce it Rich. If it's David Rich, I'm sorry, but in my mind, it's David Reich. And from that lab, what seems to have been the case in Europe is that there have been three waves of settlement. So about 40,000 years ago, and you can come up with this by looking at Europeans' genes now and charting all of these mistakes in the DNA and figuring out what they mean about who was separated from who and when because of that molecular clock. So 40,000 years ago, you have hunter-gatherers come in. These are people who are, you know, they're doing two things. They're hunting and they're gathering. And they come in 40,000 years ago. These are people who are coming from over in the Middle East and ultimately from down below in Africa. Then about 8,000 years ago, you had a new group of people coming in from what today we think of as either Siberia or the Near East. Here's the second group. Then 5,000 years ago, just 3,000 years after these Siberian people, in come a group of people from, and this has become a cliche on this show, the steppes of Ukraine. This is the Yamnaya people. They like their horses, and they are coming in. That's 5,000 years ago. Now, what's interesting is that all evidence is that the main Indo-European incursion is them. That's what Indo-European comes from. It's this latterly Group, Not the hunter-gatherers. So we go back to what the modern situation is. Basque is all by itself. It's this interesting language. It isn't anything like Indo-European languages, and it's straddling France and Spain all by itself, related to nothing else. How did that happen? Well, the way that happened is that the Yamnaya people, the Indo-European language speakers, came in, overran Europe. That was probably a gradual process. It doesn't mean that they slaughtered everything that they came to, but they came to be pretty much everything. And the Basque are the last remnant of what the original people, people in Europe, would have been. A good guess is that these Basques are left over from that second wave, the Siberian wave that came in 8,000 years ago, but the Basques also have a high rate of genes from those hunter-gatherer people, and so it might be that they're a mixture of the Siberians and the hunter-gatherers, or it could be, this would be more romantic, but whatever, they could be the last Remaining representatives of the hunter gatherers who were the first human beings to people the European continent, or really, frankly, peninsula of Asia. That's what Basque would be. But there are other things that you find yourself thinking about. And so, for example, this was already back in 1991. There was this ice man discovered in the Italian Alps. He'd been frozen up there, and it's this person who apparently was. Killed on the spot for some reason. And, you know, he's carrying a little bit of food. You can look at what was in his stomach, etc. It's basically this mummy. And you can date that this person, he's called Ötzi in I guess it's German, Southern German. That's the name that we've given him. We'll never know what his actual name was. But Ötzi is 5,000 years old. And you just find yourself thinking, or maybe some of us do, or maybe just I did. What was Ötzi speaking? What was his language So he's in Italy And because it's 5,000 years ago He's not speaking Italian Because that doesn't exist You know it isn't that Etsy was walking along Hey what are you hit me for Nothing like that But what was he speaking Well it's too early for Indo-European right Yeah because Indo-European gets to Italy In about what 1100 BC is it Yeah What is it The Noven period Villanova. <laughs> Vanilla? What? I don't know. Anyway, yes, Villanovan, and, and that's too late. So, what do you speak like? Like Basque? Yeah, probably. Or, what, those other ones that were there before Indo European? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, the the Tiersenian? Yep, not Vanillanovan, but, but Tiersenian. Vanilla. Can we get past that? Tiersenian. That's like the Etruscan that you hear about that predated Latin. And Latin is full of words from it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And those radic languages up further north, they're only in inscriptions and shit. Right. But even though they're separate, they have stuff in common. And you can tell that it was ooh, a lost language family. Uh, like that word for two? Yes. Like Zal. And, and then there was another Tiersenian, that Lemnian language, over near Turkey. So you're wondering what that is. That's Jared. And the reason is that I'm trying to make this more like a normal podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I did something a couple weeks ago that I had never done before, and I'm being very honest. I actually listened to two episodes Of podcasts. I am not kidding that I have never listened to a podcast episode in my life until then, despite the fact that I make one. So I listened to two podcast episodes, and and one of them I'm not even going to bother to tell you what it was. And the other one, most of you can probably guess. I'm probably not allowed to say it, but if I am, it was Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This. Of course, that would be the first podcast that I would listen to, because it certainly isn't going to be this one. And in any case, I figured out that apparently. Doing a podcast means you're supposed to have lots of music and you're supposed to be kind of having it weaving all in and out in the background, not just bringing on songs like a DJ. So that's why I had the Snowmiser song. From the Year Without a Santa Claus TV special from 1974, because I just thought if we're talking about the Iceman, then there's supposed to be some cold music in the background. So that was Snow Miser. That was music by Mari Laws and lyrics by Jules Bass from Year Without a Santa Claus. Then I also learned that you're supposed to have a song list. Either you're supposed to say it at the end or it's supposed to be on the site. And a lot of you are asking me to do that. And I'm beginning to understand that it really looks tre taque for me to not be doing it. So I, I, I know I need to start doing a song list. And it's painfully clear that it's not right that it's just me. You're supposed to have a second person. So apparently with a podcast, you bounce back and forth. And I asked some of my friends about that. It's supposed to be two people. And so I suppose that the ideal version of Lexicon Valley would be me. And then there's supposed to be this other guy in the booth. Well, that was Jared. Meet Jared, and notice how he and I have a kind of an interchange. In any case, it's time to bring on a song the way I usually would. Don't worry, he is not going to appear again in this episode, at least. But it's time to bring on a song. And Jeans. We're talking about jeans. Well, this song mentions jeans, except they mean blue jeans, and of course, I'm just playing it because I like it. This is the title song to Louisiana Purchase, the musical by Irving Berlin in 1940, sung by the wonderful Debbie Shapiro Gravite. Even if you don't like show music, tell me this isn't one of the most infectious songs ever written.
1: Louisiana Purchase I'll tell you what it means It means I'd like to sell you New Orleans Come on, come on And you all can go to town Way down in New Orleans Louisiana salesman With nothing in his jeans That's why I'd like to sell you New Orleans Come on, come on And do all the things there are to do In New Orleans where does that heat come from? That rhythmic beat come from? And that red meat come from? New Orleans, Louisiana purchase. I told you what it means. So won't you let me sell you New Orleans?
0: So what about India? What about it? India is a place where there's an interesting distribution of languages, and you wonder how it got that way. Picture India. It's kind of a triangle. And for about the upper two-thirds, you've got what we call Indo-Aryan languages. So the flagship language, I guess you could call it, is Hindi, the version of Hindi in Pakistan is Urdu. I hope I don't get smacked for saying that, but they are very similar languages to the point that one you, you know where I'm going. So Hindi, and then there are other languages like that. There is Bengali, and there's Marathi, and there's Gujarati, a whole bunch of Indo-Aryan languages closely related. Then in the south of India, you have these other languages, and we hear of them. In the United States, there are many people who speak them, Tamil for example, and Telugu and Malayalam and Kannada. Those languages, however, are not related at all to Indo-Aryan languages. Hindi and Tamil are from completely different language families, just like French and Finnish are from different language families. The ones down in the south are called Dravidian. They're just a whole different thing. But there's an interesting distribution, as we call it, because I say that they're all clustered down there in the south, which they mostly are. But if you look at the real language map... As you go north in India, there's some not, you know, to judge the languages in any sense, but there's some stray ones. Like you're kind of thinking, aren't you a little out of your range? Like the Kurukh languages spoken way up in the northeast of India, up around Bangladesh. There's another one up there that I always want to eat. It's called Malto. And you just you, you want to bite that one, but they probably wouldn't enjoy it. Malto is not where it's supposed to be. It's kind of up there in the northeast. Then there's one way up in Pakistan. It's called Brokwi. And in Pakistan, there are languages that are of Pakistan, like Urdu, then Indo-European languages like Pashto, but then all of a sudden you've got this Brahui, and it's not just a few people either, and that's a Dravidian language, but it's way up north, separate from where all the Dravidian action really is. So the question is, did Dravidians start where most of them are in southern India, and then some of them adventurously move north? which is a story that some have preferred, especially since the other story would be that Dravidian originally was spoken all over India and beyond, but then speakers of Indo-Aryan languages, these Indo-European people, these are people from the steppes of Ukraine, but going in the other direction, not west into Europe, but east. Was it that people like that came and overtook the Dravidians and basically today the Dravidians in the south are the last ones remaining because the Indo-Aryan speakers basically took over the show northward except for little droplets like where Brahui and Malto and Kurk are spoken. So which was it? For a long time, it was hard to tell, and some genetic analysis had it that nobody had entered the whole Indian territory in 12,000 years, and that didn't really help. And so whatever story you preferred, you could just go with that. But actually, now it would seem to be. They have learned that about 4,000 years ago, the genes can teach us not only that a bunch of people came to India, but that it was a bunch of dudes. It was men for the most part. And so you know how that works. There w- there would have been some conquerage going on, but more to the point, it looks like Indo-Aryan speakers, i.e. the eastward movers from Steppes of Ukraine, they end up coming down and coming through Iran. A lot of them stay there, and that's where you have Persian, etc. Kurdish that you hear about now, and then Kurdish is one of those Indo-Iranian languages. Then they keep coming, and they finally stop, you know, about in the middle of India, but they would have overtaken or replaced a great many people who originally would have spoken Dravidian languages. So India is originally a Dravidian-speaking place. Now it is split between Indo-Aryans who came about 10 minutes ago and remaining Dravidians. And it's interesting, there's always been an indication that that was probably the story. In that, there is the Indus Valley. This is up in the north. Of India and where Pakistan is. And in the Indus Valley, you know, in Pakistan and on the top of India, there are remnants of what was clearly a whole advanced civilization. And one thing that they had was writing. And when you look at their writing and you try to figure out what kind of language this writing was, I'd have to use another show to explain how they do this. But this writing, although nobody has ever deciphered it, looks like it has looked like to people who didn't have any dog in this fight about who was in India first, looks like it would have been Dravidian. That seems to be the structure of whatever the language of this writing is. Well, if so, once again, it's a little out of the Dravidian range. It would seem to be that Dravidian speakers, speakers of languages like Tamil, were originally much further north, but that then the scene changed and Indo-Aryans came to dominate that area. And we know it all from just the genes. And so what song do we play here? Well, this is even sillier than the Louisiana Purchase, but I just wanted to play it. Remember Josie and the Pussycats? Not the, the movie, but the the stupid cartoon series from the 70s. Remember how the show was not that good, but what everybody liked about it was the theme song? Well, that's how I felt. And at one point in the theme song, they have a very affected pronunciation of India as Inja. Tell me you didn't always kind of like that. And that's why we're going to listen to the song. So where else? Well, there are actually two places in the world where even if you're a linguist, if, if it doesn't happen to be your specialty, you have a sense that there's a language family that really is three distinct families. And if you meet somebody who specializes in languages of that area, they're often irritated that everybody thinks that it's one family when it's really three, especially the cliques, especially one person who I won't name. So there are two places. One of them is in southern Africa, where you have clique languages, which I've mentioned on the show before. They're languages with those magnificent cliques. And you would naturally think, well, that's a family. You know, if anything is a family, then you know languages with something as unusual as those clicks must be a family. But actually the languages that have those clicks, they have that in common. But then in terms of their grammatical structure, in terms of just the shape of their words, really they don't pattern together at all and they're three very separate groups. It's truly bizarre. For example, you have languages that are of a family. Talk about romance in Indo-European, so that's a subfamily. But languages that are closely related, if you have basic words, then they tend to be alike. So French for ear, ore, Spanish for ear, oreja. Um, Italian for ear. I can't remember it right now, but you know those noodles that are so good in the mouth? They're shaped like little ears, and so it's orecchiette. So, you know, ore, oreja, orecchiette. to use the accurate accents. It's clear that there was some original language that had a word kind of like that. French, Spanish, and Italian are clearly sister languages. However, that's not true of the click languages. So, for example, one click language is called chalet. Another click language is called Ju. Another click language is called – all right, get ready. I really can't – roughly that. I really just can't do it. It's a click plus a it's, – and it's. it's got a tone. Anyway, you've got those three. Now, the word for ear in khoe is – the word for ear in ju is – the word for ear in is – so, click language speakers. I know what that sounds like, but I can't get recordings of anybody doing it offline. And please, I apologize, but that was the best that I could do. You know nobody can speak your languages. But the point is that A hey, and Noah are nothing alike. It's as if they were Indo-European and Uralic and Dravidian and everything else. So, three different families, yet yeah, genetic analysis by Baker, Rotimi, and Schreiner. Wonderful paper that's taught us so much. Baker, Rotimi, and Schreiner show us that the people themselves are genetically related. And so the people who have the cliques are not just people from separate families of humanity who happen to share cliques in their languages, but nothing else because they listen to one another over the mountains or there was some intermarriage or something like that. What it means is that the languages have been separate for so very long, they've changed so very much that there's no significant recognizable likeness. But the people themselves, as you might guess, there is a unity. And so probably there was some Original click language, but we can't reconstruct it because there's been too much difference. Then there are these Caucasian languages. If you're, let's say you're on the steppes of Ukraine and you want to go try to take over India, well, you have to go down through that little kind of southeastern funnel of Russia, and then you're kind of slipping in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and Turkey's over there, and you're in the Caucasus and there are these mountains. And these mountains allow you to live under some Eve I guess avoiding an avalanche or something, but people living in isolation from each other. You're either in the valley or you're up on the mountain. And so these very distinct and very complicated languages have developed in the Caucasus. Then you come out into Iran and India. But in the Caucasus, there are these dozens of... Of really fascinating, deeply complex languages. And once again, you would think, well, the Caucasus, okay, they're in the mountains, they're eating yogurt on the old Dan and commercial. They must all be the same thing Caucasian language. And of course, we're not talking about language of the race that John Adams and Huey Long and Mitch McConnell belong to. It's called Caucasian because of the Caucasus. So you have these Caucasian languages, but no, no, it, they're not. They're not one family. They're three different families. One of them is called Northwest Caucasian. One of them is called Northeast Caucasian. The other one is called Kartvelian. And really, it's kind of like they're all very complicated. But you know, Tolstoy says that happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Well, with Caucasian languages, they're all complicated in their own ways. Si es shasliviya semi pokhozhi drug druga kazhdaya ne shasliviya semi ne shasliviva pasvoyemu That is the way Caucasian languages work but it turns out again that they are related. There is a such thing as a Caucasian person. And again, I don't mean Franklin D. Roosevelt. I mean the people who live in those mountains. And so the families, the language families, are quite separate. There are hints in them, though, that they used to be related. And that is because the genes tell us that we can assume that there was an original people who then apparently climbed to the top of a mountain and started reproducing and the babies started rolling down. I don't know. I'm in a silly mood. Sorry. But the song now is I'm going to play a Caucasian song. And no, it's not going to be, you know, some Georgian folk hymn. This is going to be the theme song to the 1952 to 1955 minor hit sitcom, I Married Joan. You know, I Love Lucy was running then. You would assume that there were many knockoffs that didn't work. There were, and you can still see a lot of them. I Married Joan is one. I wouldn't recommend it, but it had a wonderful, Theme song. And the theme song is probably the whitest musical composition ever created by human beings. Listen to the theme song of I Married Joan. I Married
1: Joan. (laughs) Joan Davis Show. I
0: Married Joan, starring America's queen of comedy, Joan Davis, as Mrs. Joan Stevens, and featuring Jim Backus as Judge Bradley Stevens. I Mary Joan. Remember, Semitic? That was a fun show. We did Semitic, and I was implying that Semitic is a language family. That's technically not true. Just like Romance is Oh, Romance, I'm recording on Valentine's Day and I said Romance. I hadn't thought about that. Romance is a subfamily of the Indo-European family. Semitic is a subfamily of the Afro-Asiatic family. And in Afro-Asiatic, and yes, this is going somewhere. There are 6 subfamilies, one is Semitic. Then another one is Berber. Berber is a whole bunch of languages. They are fascinating. Some of them you can speak with no vowels. It's (laughs) wonderful. Then there is Chadic. And really, if you're not on the scene, you probably haven't heard of Chadic languages except Hausa, which is spoken in Nigeria. Then there's Egyptian. Egyptian is all by itself on a branch. The language of the hieroglyphics is not. You know, Arabic or something like that. That hadn't happened yet. It's the Egyptian language, Coptic. That's a branch. Then Cushitic, again, we have no reason to know about that one unless there's some particularities about our lives, such as being Somali. Somali is probably the only Cushitic language that one might have had some kind of contact with, at least in the United States. Then there's this stray group. Of Afro-Asiatic. It's hard to get your finger on it. It's like a tomato seed. It's called Omotic. And it's partly because there's no language in Omotic that anybody has heard of 15 miles further than where the languages are spoken, unless you were one of the small group of specialists in this language. And the thing about Omotic is that the case that it's part of Afro-Asiatic at all has always been very fragile. Doesn't fit in. So with the other five groups, you can see similarities that make it clear that there was originally some one language, just like we can know there was originally some one Proto-Indo-European language. But with Omotic, it's kind of a weak case. And so for example, if you take all the known Omotic languages and you reconstruct what the word originally for all would have been, it would have been cool. Okay, now I'm not saying it would have been cool. I mean, the word would have been cool, okay. Now, okay, it's all. If, you know, you've been bought mitzvahed or something, then you know that Hebrew has kol for all. Arabic has hulu. And so you think, well, okay, omotic must be Afroasiatic. But then again, think about how in English we have the word hole or how Proto-Indo-European for all would have been roughly hal. So is kol cool really so specific to kol and hulu? It gets worse. Word for dog in original omotic would have been kan. Okay. But, you know, that's cute except Hebrew has kelev. Is that really so much like kan? And there's some more obscure Amotic languages where it's more like kan. There's one called gonga. See, none of us have ever heard of any of the Amotic languages, but gonga, and the word for dog is kana. But then again, we we can say canine, for example. Proto-Indo-European for dog is kwon. So really, is Amatic part of this group? And explanations have been proposed as to why omotic doesn't seem to match. So, for example, there are words for honey. If you're starving out on the savanna, you're going to get stung because you want some honey. There are words for honey that are common to all Afroasiatic subfamilies. Everybody's got the words for honey. Then, in all of these subfamilies but omotic, there are clearly related words for mucking around with cows, for pastoralism, and the like. Amotic has a whole different set of words for that kind of thing. Now, cows come to the region where Amotic is spoken in about 9,000 BC. It might be that Amotic people began as proto-Afro-Asiatic people, but they were separated off as far back as 9,000 BC. So they've been separate from the other five for about 11,000 years. So everybody else is getting their cows, and the Amotic people are either not doing that or they're getting their cows from somebody else. So maybe because the languages have been separate from the other ones for 11,000 years, that's why the signal seems so weak that might be it. But then again, genetic analysis, and this is Baker, Rotimi, and Schreiner again, has suggested that the Omotic speakers have nothing to do with the people who speak Berber and Cushitic and Egyptian and Semitic and Chadic. They're completely separate. You would never know from the genes, in other words, that Omotic speakers speak languages related to the speakers of languages from those five other subfamilies. So really, it might be And my money is on this, although nobody asked me, but it might be that Omotic is really just a whole separate family of its own, probably used to be bigger. Now it's all by itself. Omotic might be one of the Basques of Africa, and Africa probably has dozens of Basques that we just haven't analyzed that way yet. By the way, Omotic has come a long, long way from wherever It began, and you know, spelling systems are like that, where the spelling system represents the language at one point, but the way the language is actually pronounced can be quite different. And yes, English is like that, and I've talked about why English is like that, but I haven't said everything. I wanna give you the comparative facts, looking at some other languages, but I'm not gonna give it to you now. You have to subscribe to Slate Plus for a nominal fee. You get to hear me talking about that, and not only that, but you get to hear the show without any ads read by me, or anybody else. And for that nominal fee, not only do you help fund my show, but also other Slate Plus podcasts. So if you want to have that little bit at the end where you get information, which otherwise you can never hear, it's not online. I myself have never heard one of my Slate Plus segments. You have to sign up for Slate Plus. You'll be glad you did. And finally, there's interesting data about languages of the far north of North America. You know that the Inuit of today, they only go back about a 1,000 years. You know, there are reasons that you might think that they've been there since the dawn of time. But no, they haven't even been there since the dawn of the peopling of the Western Hemisphere. The ones that are there today only trace back about a 1,000 years. Before that, for many thousands of years before that, there were these other people living there who somehow the new ones essentially exterminated. There is memory of them in terms of folklore they have left fossilized and preserved remnants of their lives it was the dorset people and they apparently they were bigger than the modern inuit but they disappeared and now we have people who trace back just 1000 years the genes trace them back to languages spoken in siberia So you go backwards over what used to be the Bering Land Bridge. It used to be a whole bridge with people living there for thousands of years at a time. And today you have Siberian languages like Yukagir. And interestingly, those people are genetically related to our Inuit today. And so you can see that there are relationships that you can deduce from geography, from archaeology. The genes tell you something about these people. And it makes you consider that if we want to trace where Native American languages came from, we might want to look at these Paleo-Siberian languages. It's all about languages and Language, Sand, 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 sand. This is a song called Sand in My Shoes. And the lyrics are by Frank Lesser, who later wrote the music to Guys and Dolls, for example. And Victor Schertzinger. This is Bobby Short singing it. It is one of my favorite musical cuts ever. And, you know, it's just time to hear it. Sand
1: in my shoes. Sand from Havana. Calling me to that ever-so-heavenly shore Calling me back to you once more Dreams in the night Dreams of Havana Dreams of a love I haven't the strength to refuse Darling, the sand is in my shoes, deep in my veins the sensuous strains of the soft guitars, deep in my soul the thunderous roll of a tropic sea, under the stars. Why my life's an aimless all that is real is the feel of the sand in my
0: shoes. now what's interesting about this Native American slash way over in Siberia thing is that there's another example that's actually gotten more attention because there's concrete linguistic evidence of it Navajo that's here in America Ket, K-E-T, that's another one of these languages in Siberia, a lot of mosquitoes in Ketland. It's one of the few situations where when you hear people talk about where it's spoken, it's not wonderful. You know, that's nothing to do with beautiful sunsets or, you know, birch trees. There are a lot of mosquitoes. A lot of people seem to want to get out of there. But some of the most fascinating languages in the world are spoken in this Yeniseyan region. And the damnedest thing is that Navajo and Ket have words that are ominously similar and too many to be an accident. That's the opinion of an increasing number of linguists who are trained to analyze this sort of thing. So in Navajo, the word for foot is ket. In ket, the word is keets. In Navajo, the word for stone is tset. In ket, that word is tut. These are different. They would have been separated for a very long time now, but they're too many pairs like that to be an accident. And it gets down even into the grammar. Navajo is a language where you can cram so much into one word that it's a sentence and sometimes it's two. So I'm taking rope-like objects down one at a time. The way that you say that is, nahit dishlet, just nahit dishlet, every little piece means something. Like I went, nahit, and then I kind of stopped there. I didn't stop there because I'm shy or something like that. The that means them. So I'm taking rope-like objects, them, down one at a time. Nahit, di, All that, and it's just one word. In the same way in ket, if you wanted to say they were letting me go, you just say batondachen, batondachen, just one word. And each little bit means something. Like, for example, I won't bore you, but when I say batondachen, The oh, just the oh, that's how you put it in the past. So I'm saying they were letting me go. Well, the fact that it was in the past is the oh, just all these little pieces. Not all languages in the world work that way. Navajo and its friends do. Ket and its friends do. So that's interesting. But science is sloppy. Baker, Rotemian, and Schreiner know about that linguistic connection that a lot has been said about over about the past 15 years, but you know there's no genetic evidence for it. You wouldn't know genetically that Navajos and Kets are related. So clearly, more research needs to be done. Clearly, there are going to be slips between the genes and the language. But- it's always a lot of fun, and I wanted to share a lot of these findings because the sort of thing that I actually find myself, it's not my research, but I find myself thinking about it. And I figure, why not share it with you, especially in this dreary February? You know, for me, February is interesting. It's always both gloomy and then for some reason, lucky <laughs> in various ways. But frankly, February blows. And so what you need is good music. And let, you know, let's go back to the sand in my shoes. I mean, it's a nice, comfortable song.
1: Deep in my veins, the sensuous strains of a soft guitar. Deep in my soul, the thunderous roll of a tropic
0: sea. Under the stars. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. By the way, folks, on the song list, I know I'm not a real podcast unless I give you a list of the songs and where they came from. I'll talk to the suits about it. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter.
1: It's the feel of the sun. In my In my shoes